Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and of course, leave a review. My guest today on One for the Road is the fantastic Georgie Humphrey at Painting the Town Sober. We all know her from her funny reels and wicked sense of humour on her Instagram page. But in this episode, she talks candidly about her own personal relationship with alcohol and how she eventually managed to escape from its evil claws. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode. My podcast is in partnership with Coach Helen Bennett, who specialises in helping people with disordered eating. You may remember her from my podcast a few episodes ago. She is now offering a fabulous 10% off her coaching calls and courses just enter the code SOBERDAVE at the checkout. She also has a free masterclass, which you can access on her website, helenbennett.co. Right, on to the show. I really hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. So good morning, Georgie. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. Um, do you know what? I'm not even sure we've uh, actually visually spoken to each other yet so it's a joy to see you on this fine september morning um i don't know whether the sun's out where you are but where i am it is not it's a very rainy day and i'm gonna have to correct you right from the offset i'm afraid dave because we did do a five minute instagram live but that was in the midst of your marathon of instagram lives we did indeed so you are forgiven you're forgiven for not remembering that thank you very much and not that people can see right now listening to this podcast but they can on youtube when it's done but you look like a butterfly because at the back of your like shoulders is your chair that look like wings well, or an angel, maybe. Just the way, and who's to say they're not actually ring? Had to get everyone over to YouTube, if nothing else. <laughs> anyway, um, it's lovely to have you on today, and as usual, we like to go all the way back um, to the beginning. So, what was it like for you growing up? Where did you grow up? What were your parents like? And did they drink? You know, all the all the usual stuff. Sure, sure, sure. It's weird, isn't it? Because I was trying to think about this ahead of talking to you today, and it's weird how everyone you think you've had a really normal childhood until you sort of look back on it through an adult lens and you're like, yeah, that was kind of weird. Um, But I grew up in Liverpool. I'm the youngest of six kids. I grew up in a house with 10 people. So my my grandparents lived downstairs, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory style. Um, Just to give you the full picture, we had a Doberman Pinscher who was disabled in later life. So we used to drag him around on the car and we didn't have a lot of money, uh, but obviously there's a lot of us, so we lived in a big house. So we kind of lived on this quite nice street, but my God, did we stick out, uh, not least because we were kind of dragging a Doberman pinch around on a cart, but the money was not going into, like, garden maintenance or house painting, let's put it that way. So we, we're kind of like the Weasleys from the Harry Potter films, but, like, less magical and 
more sweary. So it was a massively busy house. Uh, and I, I get, like I say, you think that's kind of normal all through primary school. Um, my parents, what I loved about um, your book, One for the Road, great book, was when you talked about your childhood, you contextualized that by talking about your parents' upbringings. You talked about your kind of grandma cabbage. And I really related to that because my parents, um, they, they both came from very working class backgrounds in Liverpool, um, both left school at 14. Dad went to work in a tobacco factory. My mum went to work as a learned typing, shorthand typing as it was then. And she had me when she was very late in life. So she was like well into her 40s when she had me, which is completely normal now. But back in those days, it was like proper circus freak show. No, no one had babies that late. And my dad was 11 years older than her. So they were actually both the silent generation, like World War Two kind of, you know, jam. And as any like Gen Xer will tell you, like growing up in the 70s and 80s is just a completely different scenario um, and I kind of look back at my childhood and they were so, they were amazing parents really devoted they just everything they did was to just keep us fed watered keep things going but you know it was hard man it was there's a lot of mouths to feed there was a lot of stuff going on it was kind of relentless for them and d drinking was never a big deal in our household my dad would I if there is such a thing as a healthy model of drinking, I mean, of course, now we know there isn't. But back then he would like go out at the, you know, we go and play snooker, we go to the pub and it was never. I mean, he'd just be a bit more jovial and he was just an amazing guy, like warm and fuzzy and optimistic. And he reminded me a little bit of how I described your dad, actually. He was always like cracking jokes. And yeah. my mum was the one who just had to just make shit happen, get stuff done. But everything I, I so, so yeah so drinking was not an issue in my household loving parents um but very busy it, it, I was laughing at, I was reading Gabor Mate um in the realm of hungry ghosts and I know he's like huge on social at the moment and he talks about uh the you know the link between addiction and childhood trauma and he talks about having your emotional needs met and I think anyone growing up in the 70s or 80s would just laugh at that because I, I, they don't have time to meet your emotional needs they you know yeah. if you got like a curly whirly while you're watching the Dukes of Hazard on Saturday that was all emotional needs being met so <laughs> it, they were great parents but you could look at it through a different lens now because we're also like hyper aware of yeah you know, it's true everything. but um but they were great they were they, you know they were great parents it's great childhood for me I had um it was kind of weird. So youngest of six. So every year a sibling was kind of leaving the house to go to uni and they never came back. That's just how it was those days. One went to live in Brazil, one went to live in Greece, one went to so it was kind of a little bit like and then there were none. Like everyone was kind of leaving one day after the next. I went to uh secondary school and I think this is really where things started to change for me. I turned up in secondary school to this Liverpool comp that my mum it sent me to. Now, my mum, Silent Generation, as I mentioned, was proper old school. But she she inexplicably talked like Hyacinth Bouquet, even though my mum, my, my nan lived in our house and she talked like Lily Savage. My mum's brother would come to the house and he was like a proper scouser. But my mum had obviously made a decision somewhere along the line. I'm just going to rebrand myself as this like very well-spoken. And she would correct our elocution all the time. And so I rock up to this comprehensive school in the 80s in Liverpool in what my mum addressed me in which was like 
the same blazer my sister wore 10 years ago that looked like it had been sprayed on because I was always like a little chubby child. Uh, and anyway, I go into this school. I'm in my Clark's shoes, my plaid thing, and a hat, a bloody hat. That school hadn't seen a hat since like the 1950s when it was a convent school. And instantly, she might as well have just strapped me in stakes and sent me into a lion's den because the abuse that I got for the way I looked, the way I was dressed, the way I spoke was unbelievable. And I think within probably within about three weeks, I'd assimilated to just full on scouse talking like that. I was coming home talking like that. It's all right, isn't it? You know, full on reinventing myself. I thought, right, this is I got a job in an old people's home at the weekend. And I had a little plastic bag that I used to hide at the end of the garden with like Timpsons tucker boots in that I'd bought and a fake a kind of knockoff kappa jacket, hoop earrings, the whole shebang. And so began my kind of like first, I mean, age 12, everyone was smoking, everyone was drinking around the back of the bike sheds. It was, it's kind of terrifying looking back because I think, my God, your tiny little brains are just yeah. not ready for it. And so I quite quickly kind of thought, I, I don't know who I am. I don't really belong with these kids, the scallies we used to call them. But they were kind of the scallies with the cool kids in their kappa jackets smoking behind the bike sheds. And I thought, right, OK, well, just I'll join them. I don't know. I um, I wasn't academic, although I excelled in some things, but I absolutely flopped in everything else. So English I had an interest in and I do everything else horrendous. So it really age 14, I think, was the year that I would say everything changed um, for me. My both my grandparents had died within a couple of years of each other. All of my siblings had kind of gone one one after the other to university. And, and at age 14, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, totally out of the blue. And being the proper kind of old school silent generationers that they were, we never talked about it. We never said the words. We never mentioned it. We'd take him to his chemo appointments. We were watching him kind of like fade away before our eyes, like unbelievably traumatic. But we never actually spoke the words out loud. We never had a conversation about it. And to cut a long story short, between those kind of years, between like 14 and 17, when he, he, he did finally pass away, my life was in between kind of being at home, helping my mum. He was at home the whole time, like nurse my dad, and then just going out and getting absolutely out of my mind. And back in those days, it was speed. It was trips. It was the it was like the 90s rave scene just kind of springing to life by acid house and and I just went out obviously god for incredibly understandable reasons there I was completely off the ball I'd just be like I'm going out to Louise's for the weekend and come back at like on like Monday like age 14 and we'd go to these big warehouse raves and ironically I, I look back at those times now and it wasn't so much alcohol then it was all amphetamines uh trips and my tiny little 14 year old brain was it's it's horror it's terrifying looking back but I just found so much solace in that I listened to a podcast with Mandy Manners and I really related to her story about finding solace in that kind of tribal beats and just zoning out and the weird thing is I, I look back at that time obviously it was the worst time of my life my dad was dying we would my mum was just you know really struggling I was kind of going from like warehouse raves doing speed to back home into this like environment that was once this busy bustling house but now it's just like three people one of whom was like you know clearly on his way out and it was it was really a weird time but it, it, there was so much sort of 
it just sounds so weird to say, but there was comfort in that being out of my mind. Um, we'll touch on this later, but I'd recently been diagnosed like so many of the people in the sober community with ADHD. And weirdly, um, amphetamines is actually one of the basis of a lot of ADHD medications. And I was obviously finding that self-medication myself, age 14. So that was my gateway, really. For a lot of people, it's the other way around, isn't it? But for me, I was straight into recreational drugs, which I was obviously using to self-soothe and you know, and just blot out, really. And then by the time I got to 18, I'd obviously failed my A-levels. Well, actually, I got very ADHD A-level results. I got an A in English and failed everything else because you hyper-focus on the one thing and fell everything else. But then obviously went through this very difficult time at home. Um, and by the time I uh, got to uni, I was kind of, I'd already been sort of on it like a car bonnet for four years obviously I went a year late because I had to retake and I kind of rocked up to uni like this kind of like world weary kind of like seen it all done it all and that was where I started drinking because I was like well I can't really you know I've got to move away from this like Liverpool rave scene now to so it was here came my sort of like second rebrand from kind of like hard ass scouser to I don't know like southern uni girl because you're talking about my accent earlier and it is it's it's so funny when I go back to Liverpool my friends in Liverpool sort of think that I talk like the queen but, <laughs> but, but, but which is hilarious isn't it but it, it it comes out I find that I whoever I'm with I kind of start talking like them by the end of it it's 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 I think it's something I've I've kind of picked up since I was a kid like I'm just always trying to assimilate maybe we're all just doing impressions of whoever we think people want us to be. I mean, at the moment, I do an impression of being like a middle-aged mother, housewife and sorry, whatever. It's like you're just constantly putting out different versions of yourself. But uni came along and this is when I was like, wow. I mean, drinking, I, st I still remember hating the taste initially and thinking, why would anyone not like, why don't you just take, take a tab? It's like, you don't even have to drink anything. You could, But quite quickly realizing that, it, it was just this magical shortcut from being this like terrified little rabbit who didn't want to say anything to like, you know, just like pogo dancing on a platform and just being like, let's have it. And it was just, I, I still remember like almost see the neural pathways firing thinking like, this is, this is like a, this is my free ride to confidence and personality and fun. Like, it's just great. You can just neck a few. It's legal. So that's great. And I was absolutely just hedonistic, at, like a lot of people at that age. And you can do it at that age, you know, you, late teens, early 20s. And yeah, it was extreme. Um, always kind of party girl. Loved that moniker. My God, I wore it with such pride. I was like, yeah, love it. Until the next day when I bump into someone in campus. So you'd have these great booze bonds, wouldn't you? It didn't matter who they were. And you were best mates for the night. And oh my God, like the book clenching cringe of the next day when someone would be like, oh, you were having a good time last night, were you? You're just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I did. I don't know what I said. Did I speak to you? I don't know. And you just kind of get used to handling that in your life and enveloping it. And, I, and thinking, actually, the problem here is the lack of booze. It's not the booze that was happening the night before. It's the lack of booze now. So then in kind of creeps, drinking in the day, uh, drinking before lectures, 
drinking on come down. Like I was still going clubbing all the time. So it wasn't unusual. You get back from a club at six and start drinking at six. So it all sort of you're just living in this weird world where time isn't really, you know, a thing. And yeah, like I said, I think you, you can get away with it in those years, but only to a point. The, I, I always I was kind of looking back thinking it's like my drinking phase went in three sections, really. There was like the party years when it was it was all about fun. Yeah, it was just elixir of joy. Everything was just about getting on it like a car bonnet. And then there were the prescription years, which was like, no, no, I need a drink. I need a drink to do this. I need a drink to. And it, Medi- and it would medicate. be like totally yeah, yeah totally uh, but but it quickly goes from like to just like needing a, a a drink to like go it's like I need a drink to make a phone call I need a drink to make a you know I it just like mental and then the final phase which obviously we'll get to is like the prison years where you just can't escape you, you can't escape yeah yeah so we're still in the party years here and yeah. obviously just you know it's all good but do you not think we it was a lot of the time when you're going through those years, you don't really know any different because everyone else is doing it, right? Yeah. yeah. And when you get into the prison years is when we, which we go on to, but it's when we begin to be secretive because we're ashamed of where it's taken us. So for me, like with the party years, I remember one example, right, as you probably know, um, I lived quite near you yes, um, a few I years do. ago, right? And uh, I had this huge office contract in Sutton, um, this office box carpet, right? And on a Friday night, I said to my mate, I'm not going out tonight because we got this big job in the morning. He was being like a bit of a labourer just for something to do and a bit of money, right? And he said, why don't we just go out for a couple? So mm. we went to the old bar one in Sutton, had a couple in there, ended up in Chicago's till three o'clock in the morning, got chatting some people outside where the burger store is, right? I got home at five o'clock in the morning, right? We had to meet the MD of this building at half past six. I feel your pain. Yeah. But I turned up and I was literally hanging, but probably still drunk. Now, I cringe at the thought of that now. And the job was horrendous. We had to take up all the old carpet, which was glued to the floor. And it was coming up in like one inch segments and ripping up the concrete underneath. It was literally a hell, right? But back in those days, it was like, this is what we do. It's like, uh, uh, you look back on it at the time when you're in the pub that night. Oh, my God, what have we just done? And we get drunk. But it's these kind of things, right, that make your skin crawl. Because now I couldn't even begin to think what I must have looked like at the time. But what do you do with that, you know? But how how did we do it? Like, how did – don't you just look back and think, how did I mentally yeah. handle because I, I like you're telling me that story and I can feel my whole body clenching because like I can relate to it so strongly but how did we mentally cope with I don't think we knew any different yeah Georgie I think we we become this character as you said we become this character that we you know that's what they say about functioning alcoholic because we function right it's only when you take yourself out of it that you realize actually how awful it must have been like it's like having flu continuously with the you know the lowness in mood the hangovers the feeling sick the anxiety all of that it's when you feel a different person as we do now you realize how dreadful that hamster wheel of living daily or weekly like that actually was for us absolutely and I think the problem is as well and I mean there's so many insidious things about alcohol but one of them is that 
those hangovers, which can last, which could have lasted three to four days back in the day, are so bad because you're actually withdrawing, right? But in in our little adult wino brains, the way I translated that was this is life without alcohol. Not this is like life withdrawing from alcohol. This is just life without alcohol. So this is why we need that. I mean, that's that's the amazing mind trick that it plays on you, right? And that's why it keeps you stuck in that prison for so long. But you, you've got to get over that hump. You do. You have to get over that hump. But, you know, the party days were a fascinating conversation because it's almost because everyone else does it. It's accepted, but it's when you start going from the party days to functioning when you pick the kids up from school yeah. or after a long day of work and it's actually been okay or it's been terrible or it's been really good. It's still, well, I'm going to have a drink anyway. And then you begin to rely on it. And that's, I think, where it changes. So let's go on to that for you. Like you had the party days. When did you start to incorporate in in your life, whether it's daily or weekly, that you actually began to like, because I say it becomes a little bit like eating. We just eat, right? We, we don't go, oh, do you know what? I don't think I'll um, not eat tomorrow. We eat, right? And after time, we don't know why or when, well, we just eat, right? And it's like with a drinking, we drink. So what part of your life did it change from the party days? So I, <laughs> I, positioned my life in such a way after uni that drinking was an absolutely pivotal part to my jobs so first of all when I first left uni I went to work for BA as a trolley dolly and this is obviously like 400 years ago but there back then all different now but back then everyone everyone and I mean everyone on the crew got down route got on it like an absolute carb on it You'd have the and you'd have the officer in the first uh, the first officer in the pilot. One of them would, one of them wouldn't, because they they'll fly back the next morning. A lot of these were like split duty flights where you take the last flight out, first flight back. And for loads of those night stops, I would just stay up drinking all night and take the first flight back. Absolutely steaming. We used to do oxygen at the back of the plane. I mean, I laugh about it now. I mean, it's awful. It's te- it's terrifying. That's like, but as I say, a long time ago, and it's deeply shameful now. And it was a time when booze was all free on flights as well, limitless minibar. And they, they, it wasn't monitored. So people just used to take it off. We'd like scoop it up, down route, little gins, little bright. Unbelievable. And again, drinking in the morning because there was no morning because one minute we were in like Tel Aviv and the next minute we were, and it was insane. So two years of my life I spent doing that early 20s again I didn't really was I mean I clearly I had a problem but I never had a hangover I never missed a day's work in fact work was just part of the jam you know it was all wasn't taxing work like chicken or beef tea or coffee let's get on it in a nice hotel so that was two years and then after that I went to work in London in media sales so like obviously just what's my skill set I don't know I like talking I like drinking let's just do that so kind of fell into this career and the first the first job I had was for an alcohol, a trade title, alcohol trade title. So it's like people who are kind of, you know, selling alcohol to suppliers, whatever. Um, and that went well. And then ultimately, I spent the bulk of my career working for a really big London uh, restaurant and bar magazine. And my job title was drinks specialist. I mean, never has there been a great irony. and. My job was working with the big alcohol companies. So my clients were Diageo, 
Pinot Ricard, all of the big kind of dark overlords of big alcohol. Um, and I thought I had, it was just an idea for me. It was, I mean, it was so old school. There was a lot of lunches because we were working in conjunction with the restaurants and the drinks clients. So my job was kind of creating like sponsorship deals and enterprises between the two. So, you know, say you're a vodka and you want to get into a Gordon Ramsay restaurant, or you're a champagne and you want to host a dinner. So all the time I was in restaurants with drinks clients or agents and we were drinking and there was drinks launches and there was promos and everything. It got to the stage in that job where it was commission only. So I didn't, I, I got to a stage where I didn't even have to go in the office anymore. I would bypass the office and I'd have like a lychee martini in my hand by like 12.30 before lunch. But because you're in a fancy place and you've got a fancy drink and you're trussed up like a Christmas tree, no one bats an eyelid. But there was absolutely no difference between me and the guy on the street outside Sainsbury's who was clutching a paper bag. And I remember the first time, and, it, and, it, and it, this is where the phases blur, right, between when did it stop being fun? Because in, in, the, in the sort of prescription, the medication phase, there is a massive crossover. You're having a good time, you're having a good time, you need more, you need more. But I do remember one seminal moment for me when I was going to one of my kind of lunches and I was trying to put my mascara on in the morning, like, you know, because putting your face on was a huge part of it. My hand was shaking so much. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, and I, I just I remember having this realisation that, like, Jesus Christ, this is. And I, I can't believe it took me so long to even. And it took something that severe yeah. to work it out. And um, I just remember having this absolute sinking feeling of like, what can I do? How can I? Because there was no way I could go without makeup. There was no way I could. And I was at home. And so I had a drink because I was like, this is the only way I can do it. And this is like 10 o'clock in the morning before I go to a lunch at like 1230. And I was like, it's the, it was the only way I could stop my hand from shaking. And I, I do remember at that moment thinking, this is bad. You know, this is terrible. And it carried on. I, I, I constantly, my God, Dave, you you must hear this from your clients all the time. I had so many run-ups to sobriety. And I I think that every run-up you have is amazing and you should celebrate it. And you shouldn't feel like, oh, I failed at that. Because I truly believe that with every run-up and failed attempt I had, I got a little bit closer to getting over the wall. Yeah. Like training for a marathon, you know, it's like you, you're not yeah. just going to go out there and run 26 miles. I mean, if you can give up completely, instantly give up. But, you know, you, you do do it what you can. But if you if you if you try and you don't get there the first time, it's all part of the training, you know. Um, and so I had lots of like I had a stint here, a stint there, a stint, you know. But in all honesty, at this part of my life, um, what really kind of saved me was I've, I met my um now husband um and he is one of those bastards <laughs> moderate bloody drinker yeah. wtf and i don't really like hanging out with those kind of weirdos and i was just thinking oh god this is to and I, I used to fight on early dates i was like oh my god it's excruciating like having to make this glass of wine and I, it was i just found it so and i remember going on a, on a trip away once and it was like a, you know, this is when we were like dinkies, like dual income, no kids yet, where you could just do nice stuff and you weren't like, you know, anyway, 
tail for another time. I, I hazard to say we're, we're recording this on what is it? It's day five of week six of a six week summer holiday. And I've got three sub 12 year old boys who have been completely I've been at their behest for the entire time. So if I sound a little world weary and a little anti kids, just let me give some context as to that's why I'm like I'm like a little barnacle clinging onto my will to live at the moment until they go back to school next week. But anyway, I digress. In the olden days, before kids, we were out in this, I can't remember where we were, it might have been like Rome or somewhere like that. And we we come out of the hotel and there were these people like drinking in a bar, like it must have been eleven o'clock. And I remember Ed saying to me, like, honest to God, like what kind of people would come to a place like this and just want to be getting on it in at eleven o'clock? And I remember thinking, me, yeah. me, <laughs> that's who, me. But um, obviously, he, I, I, I did uh, eventually like let on my true self. He realised that I was this like kind of crazy booze hound. Um, but in all honesty, we had, we got married, we had kids, and I think this is kind of a gift to a lot of women because that men don't have really because you you have to stop like that like biology nature everything you you know that's it because obviously the, the very act of drinking itself is so unnatural and uh, you know so really that was when so I think I was just moving into that like prescription very dodgy phase but then marriage kids we had like two under two then three under four and obviously everything kind of you know that I, I was in a little bubble then I obviously stopped working during that period but this is where things changed again and this is kind of like the evolution that a lot of drinkers have right you you have you think it's gone out of your life and I remember when I first drank again after um my youngest and thinking like oh my god this is amazing I'm gonna be like one of these people who just has a glass of wine maybe two maybe three on Christmas day I am normal I'm barely drunk yeah I am a normal person now was I back a normal person <laughs> and it was instantaneous it was absolutely instantaneous and it was just like I never stopped and it was worse than ever it was it was worse than ever because now I didn't have my sort of like armor of like, oh, here's me red lipstick and my faux fur collar and I'm sitting in a fancy restaurant. Now it was just like, I'm in my sweats. It's like, you know, three o'clock and I've got three kids, like preschool kids going absolute and motherhood and fatherhood. Parenthood is freaking hard and so isolating and lonely and monotonous and thankless and and if your brain knows a shortcut to just oblivion yeah oh mate I mean you know like young kids just get well kids of any age as I say a bit world weary at the moment with kids but it it was hard and this this is when things just completely changed yeah and there was there was no gray area then it there was there was no party there was no fun. There was no elixir of joy. It was just like numb, just anesthetic. So, and it started, and it, I do feel, I feel so much sadness about this. And like so many people um, in sobriety, because it, I just, it, it, the shame is immense, isn't it? You know, and, and it's it's this weird kind of seesaw that you're on between being offered wine on play dates and being like, yeah, come round. We're all, and we're all kind of pretending this is normal. Like 
you're on a four-year-old's play date. Why are we on like the second bottle of Sauvignon Blanc? It's just, it's so, it's so insidious how it's crept into our culture. And all those bloody wine memes and, you know, mums must be wine o'clock for mums. And I'll tell you what makes parenting easier. And it's like, Jesus Christ. But I loved that. I lapped it up. Every one of those like jaunty little, you know, kitchen signs, Gina Clark. And it, and it, they really keep people in Hurrah for Ginge, remember her? Totally, yes, Acid, I do. wasn't it? Hurrah yeah. for Ginge. She sold yeah. over a million copies, I think, Gosh. of her book. But it's all around that culture. And, you know, like in the carpet game, working where you live, I know that for a fact um, there was a large amount of women that would pick the kids up from school um, come back and I'm like doing the hallway or something. They all scuttle into the kitchen. I could hear the popping of the Prosecco, right? At half past three. But at five o'clock that, that then having to take the kids back. And I was thinking now, I wonder how many went back and had more. Um, but I say, oh, it's just a couple of glasses after the school. And when I go home, I have a cup of tea. It's like now we know more. That's yeah. not often the case. And you know, I remember Claire Pooley. Um, in her book, she said that she she would have a mug of wine in the cupboard yeah. that she could reach up high and have like glugs out of the cup. Yeah, yeah, because you you've got to normalize it into your life. You've got to assimilate it into yeah. your background. I, yeah, I, I loved her book. Her book was one of the first that I read um, in early sobriety, and and obviously it's brilliant. Like in terms of how she describes motherhood, because I I did so many of those things with my kids after a few glasses of wine, like. Let's get the karaoke out. Yeah, yeah. And anyone looking up from the outside would be like, oh, what a what fun a great mom. mom. No, no, yeah. that's just a hammered mom. Who's, yeah, who's they're, trying they're, to let's justify. get the dominoes round, dominoes takeaway. And of yeah, course, you yeah. can stay up late. Of course, you don't have to do your homework and all this business while you're glugging the wine. Exactly. But catch that same mom, that same fun mom on the school run the next day. Yeah. My God. And I think that was when it started. There was a school trip that I had to do once. I was so ill on this school trip. I had to vomit in a service station on the M25. It was, and it's just, it was, oh my God, it was such a horrible way to live because on the outside, you're doing this like impression of this kind of like mum of three, living in the home counties, taking them to the sports clubs. But you're just, you feel like rotten to the core inside. And because you're holding all of this kind of shame and because you're not going to tell anyone about it because you're so, you know, you've been spoon fed so much that if you have one too many, if you can't moderate this highly addictive drug, alcohol, then there's something wrong with you. Like you're deficient. You should be able to have two glasses of wine and then not care about the next. But that's just not the case with alcohol is so Moorish. It's one of the most addictive drugs out there. Yeah. And it's not really that surprising that people get addicted to. An well, it's that drug. whole um, label the alcohol industry puts on the bottle, isn't it? Drink responsibly. So basically, what they're saying is it's up to you what you do with it. But we've covered our asses here. Totally. Right? Totally. So, oh, yeah, I can have two glasses of wine and have a cup of tea after. Uh, well, you're playing with, as you say, one of the most highly addictive drugs in the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's Russian roulette, isn't it? It's before you know it, you're having three or four. Um, So at what point then did you think, right, enough's enough? So it was. So after God knows how many runs at sobriety that I'd had before, I 
I, I realized somewhere almost like viscerally, like primevally, really, that there was no joy in drinking anymore. I like, like when Ed worked away, I couldn't wait because I'd be like, oh, great. I can have like two bottles tonight. I can have. And my I went through a really short period where my drinking racked up dramatically in a really, really short space of time. And it went from like one bottle a night to two bottles a night three bottles a night and I and it, it it thank god it wasn't a large amount because when that happened I realized this is inc- this is life-threatening like imminently life-threatening drinking you know just so and, it, and no effect it felt like it had no effect it was a completely different world that I was in I was just like trudging through this just hell potion with like corpses floating around it just felt everything was wrong and I had uh, I was obviously diagnosed with depression with you know all of I went through this whole mental health meltdown at no point did anyone ask me about my drinking by the way I didn't volunteer it GP mental health crisis center and it was like well it's postnatal you've had no one asked me I knew but no one asked me which is just insane um, and then long story short, I found my way to the, 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 big, the biggest, the greatest advice I could ever give anyone who relates to this story in any way is talk to so, once you talk to one person, open those floodgates because you feel so much shame, so alone. And you are not because there are millions of us out there, bloody millions of us. You know, you could probably stand in your garden and throw a ball and you'd hit one on the head. There are so many people struggling with alcohol. And thank God now, thanks to, you know, people like you, the sober movement has got so much traction that it's getting so much better. And the first thing I did was Google, um, obviously, am I an alcoholic? I don't relate to that word personally, although I think everyone else has the right to identify however they want to identify whether it's an alcoholic or whatever um and I somehow the first thing that I found that I could relate to was um Annie Grace this naked mind and she did there was basically like an online course which is like get you know how to give up alcohol and I did that and it was amazing I was like oh my god this is great and I was sober for the whole of November and then do you know what I did Dave have a guess you drank because of Christmas I was like I can give up now. So what I'll do is I'll just have one more month of drinking and then I'll have a great Christmas. Unbelievable. Yeah. I I swear I probably nearly killed myself in that month. I drank so much. It was horrendous. I can't even, I mean, maybe it was a rite of passage. Maybe I just had to walk through that. There was absolute pure hell. I remember like just crying and drinking wine and crying as I was doing it. But like, I have to drink this because I, I'm not going to drink after this. And it was awful. And long story short, I drank my last drink on December, New Year's Eve, December 2019. And my first day of sobriety is January 2020. And when you did that, was you completely aware at the time on the New Year's Eve? Was you aware that that is your last drink? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so you planned it. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and uh, do you know what? I think as well. I just I'd taken myself so low that I I felt like, and maybe it was true, but I, I, in my mind it was like you either never drink again 
or you will die. Might not be immediate, might be slow, might be your children like, you know, you do such a good job at convincing yourself that you're coping, you're managing your. And I had this kind of like picture of my kids in front of me and just thought, I have to stop for them, for me. And just there was something so sort of strong about this feeling from within. I, I really believed, I really believed, maybe it was true. I was just, I would just die. If I drank again. Well, as you said before, Georgie, I think it was the, the times that you've put it so eloquently about like doing training for it. I always relate to like an assault course, you know, yeah. you've got the Sergeant major there at the hurdles and there's that big wall, right? And that's the, the killer one, the big wall that you're getting up and you just can't get, but one day you think, you know, I'm going to get over that. Right. Yes. And that was your December the 31st, 2019. Totally. Right. And what I, what I want to ask you, right is that dry january was after that so that's actually not a bad month to give up yeah. but then what happens then is in february people do what you did in the november they go do you know what i've proved to myself i haven't got a problem with alcohol i can have the odd drink here and there so i don't have to end it i can actually live alongside it and everything's going to be all right so in february they go back to it and they get the fading bias effect which as you know you forget how bad it was right how did you manage in the first few weeks? And this is a question that I get asked a lot when I say, have a lovely bath, put some magnesium salts in and have an early night. And people say to me, I've got three kids. They will not go to bed at nine o'clock. I'm pulling my hair out. How am I meant to do that? So how did you cope in the first few weeks of sobriety with three ankle biters? Okay, so I had f- physical withdrawals. And I had four days when I was in absolute hell. And it was her, it was like train spotting style, retching, yeah. shaking, sweating. And I told everyone that I had the flu. And I convinced myself as well that I had the flu, but it wasn't the flu. It was withdrawals from alcohol and very heavy withdrawals. And there was a time when I thought I'm going to have to. And I think depending on your level, very few people have physical withdrawals. So that's a, a, a just a thing to put out there. But for the, the, the small percentage of us that do, you have got to get someone in. I mean, thank God it, the time of year, like my husband was off. He could look, look after the kids for those four days. Um, so that would be my first piece of advice, depending on what level of drinking you are. But you are going to need somebody to. And even if you don't have the physical withdrawals, mentally, physically and emotionally prepare yourself for hell for a few days. And it is just a few days. That is not what life feels like without alcohol. That's what life feels like withdrawing from alcohol. And you've got to get through that. You say it's like an assault course. That's your first hurdle. And it's a big one. And you've got to get over that. And for me, I took sleeping tablets because I couldn't sleep. I was so ill. I ate when I could eat. I ate literally anything. I didn't give two shits about health or nutrition. I mean, you know, other people will give other advice. But for me, give yourself anything that you want that isn't alcohol for the first few days, just the first few days. Yeah. Get yourself through that. Wrap yourself in a duvet. Sweat it out. Watch, you know, Netflix. If you can't get anyone to look after your kids, let them just sit on iPads for two days. Because 
nothing is more important to your sobriety and long term you will be so much of a better parent for the sake of those four days that they might spend on their iPad or you know at their grannies or whatever but you've got to get through those first few days and they are pivotal because after that then you're starting to count and also connection I mean there's that old adage isn't it that the opposite of addiction is connection and it is so true the difference the the huge difference I make between previous attempts and this attempt was I just I reached out and whether you do that on social media join groups get a coach get a sponsor get a mentor whatever you need to do have that support 100% right because um I always say when you get to a point in, in your drinking days when you're isolating, you're even isolating from yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and And you're really lonely. You could be in a room full of people, right, and feel the loneliest person in the world, right? So when you stop, the last thing you need is to feel lonely because you're then sitting with shame, um, regret, and then you start to ask yourself, well, was I really that bad? When you start to meet people, like-minded people mm. that can relate to you, and there's almost like the Mason's handshake, we almost know that, yeah, I've got you. I, I, yeah, yeah, you're one of us, you know, and it's the open arms that um, the community holds open with no judgment, and I like to say zero judgment of, yeah, I know exactly. You was on three bottles of wine, so was I. Yeah, yeah, you know, well, but if you tell your mate down the road or a neighbour, they go, "What? Yeah, we need to get you into rehab immediately." There's no understanding, you know. <clears throat> or you go to the quack and they're like, "Well, you need to reduce," you know, if they even ask you. But don't even get me on that one because I, I oh, went reduce, the, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, try try to reduce. And actually, in hindsight, for you, when you uh, did stop at in December the thirty first, you, if you were having that chronic withdrawals then that would probably be the safer option at the time to reduce because you it's interesting what you say right about this you went from one bottle to two because in my experience as a coach right quite often I hear when I drink a bottle of wine a night and I say every night seven days a week they go yeah and I go even weekends um well maybe I say because I'll tell you from my experience what happens is you want that one glass out the second bottle just for a nightcap. Yeah, of course right? you do. And that first glass turned into two. Yeah. And within a month, that turned into three quarters of the second bottle. But then is that's dangerous enough, right? But then it goes towards the third bottle, right? And this is where alcohol's evil, right? Because it's like the poison ivy around your throat. It just grips you tighter and tighter totally. and tighter. Yeah. And you're not really aware of what your decision making is. You go, oh, sod it, let's have another one, right? So giving up, like like me, though, I gave up after three, four bottles. I used to drink a whole box a night. And I used to moan going into Sainsbury's when they changed it from three-litre boxes to 2.25. I was like, I was like one of them people in Speaker's Corners, like, what do you mean you change it? Well, European laws, blah, blah. I don't care. Three litres is four bottles, 2.25 is three bottles. What is going on here? I'm losing a bottle of wine now. You know, it's like... Totally know what you mean, yeah. Insane, absolutely insane. Um, But so you did that. Um, I bet your husband was happy as well. I mean, he he was incredibly supportive. You know, I am so lucky 
to have that because if he was a heavy because some people say but he drinks how do you I mean he didn't drink around me at all for the first month I said I can't I see it I can't and he absolutely respected that but I have no problem being around him drinking now at all and quite quickly actually because I look at him drinking like we just recently got back from holiday and it's like an anthropological experiment like watching like primates in the wild I look at him drinking and I'm just like who drinks like that like yeah. he'll have a glass of wine and leave a bit in the bottom and walk out I'm like, oh my god I what, kind of planet, what kind of weirdo would do yeah. that and also what's the point in having a glass of wine and I just watch him drink and think like I was like you don't even get a buzz off that why you know and it's so it's no problem to me at all watching someone drink moderately and it's no problem to me at all being around people who are drinking but it is a problem to me being around people who are drunk and this is what going back to the early sobriety tips don't I I was really lucky because my sobriety coincided with lockdown and that was a blessing for me because obviously don't go out don't have to go out and that's another big piece of advice. Just don't go to anything that is triggering. Um, but yeah, back to Ed. I hid my drinking from him quite successfully as well. He knew I was quite a boozer, but he had no idea the extent to which it had gone. Because, you know, we are very good at covering our tracks, right? I mean, we, I honestly think that sometimes like the CIA or someone should just think about just recruiting straight Employing from, us because yeah. we're masters of disguise, aren't we? Yeah, we are. You know? We are. We are masters of disguise. We have the highest pain threshold in the world because the misery that we have to live through. Yeah, we're and so we're incredibly good. resilient, you know. Like if you think of those years and years and years of like what we said, me going to work after an hour – you know, and, and how we adapt to that situation. In fact, that's a really good uh, idea for a career change. Well, I, it's always on the table, like never too late, Dave. But I do I do think that, and also the acting, the acting performances that we would put in. Oscar like, winning. Oscar winning. Firstly, like trying to pretend to be nonchalant about drinking. Like, you know, you'd be at someone's house and be like, oh, are you having a glass of wine? Oh, are you having one? Only if you have one. And all the wine, like, just give me the fucking wine. Yeah. And I... I you're constantly doing an impression of a moderate drinker when literally all of your brain space is just taken up by when and where is my next drink coming from. So back in the day, all of my days would be planned around where the first drink stop would be. When could I get my first drink? I mean, it didn't matter where we were going. If we were going on a country walk or we were going, you know, we had that a pub had to factor in somewhere. And what is amazing about sobriety is the amount of brain space you get back is unbelievable yeah it's like rebooting your bloody iMac in it and and clearing the caches out and downloading one of those apps that sorts your photos out and all of a sudden you've got all this bloody gigabyte back right totally it is it's it's amazing I was I was just thinking as you was talking there about give me the bloody wine yeah was I refused to go out with people who were moderate drinkers in the end because they had to be gluggers like me because I would get around in and I'd have done my pint by the time they'd had one sip and I used to like my eyes must look like the devil of like can you bloody drink up yeah but now right it's all about the company which it should be about the conversations you can have and about the, the excitement the next morning of I really had a fantastic night last night and I remember every single word that was said rather than oh my god did I say anything did I do am I going to oh, get a text mate. saying oh my god do you remember falling out the cab yeah you know, all these things 
So you're coming up to four years. Four years in January, yeah. 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 How different now is your life? Oh, my days. I mean, it is, it's, it's absolutely night and day. And I look back now and I honestly think just how in the name of all that's holy did I ever, ever do it? I just I have no idea. And and ironically, if you'd have spoken to me four years ago, I would have told you in all honesty that I did not believe in any part of me that I could be happy without alcohol at all. I, I just I, I, there was a time when I just thought I just don't know if I if I can do it. I don't know if I can do anything without alcohol because alcohol had just completely hijacked my whole circuitry in my brain. And I couldn't get dopamine from anywhere else. I couldn't things that you're meant to feel joy, like you know, going for a walk, spend time with your kids, eating a lovely meal, just whatever it was. None of it worked without alcohol because that's how big a tighter hold it had on me. But my God, and God, it's not like alcohol fixes, you know, sobriety fixes everything. Life is, we've got a lot of other issues going on at the moment with my um, young, youngest being sort of diagnosed with ADHD and autism. And we've got quite a lot of kind of big family stuff going on. But what I've got now, thank God, is like the means to deal with it and the capability to like handle, just to handle my own stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and the good times are so good and the bad times still come, but it's just this, happy sort of contented space where you can just kind of like chug along in your little canoe and you know you've got it rather than these extreme sort of highs down with these like horrendous lows I mean the highs have gone towards the end anyway but the lows god Dave I don't know how I just I I honestly it is like night and day and yeah I just I it's it, in a way it's hard even taking my mind back to that place because it feels like so long ago but yeah it's, it's transformational how would you how would you describe it because you're a year ahead of me right you yeah I'm, I'm a year ahead it's uh I, I think the the biggest thing for me is that I've just learned to manage life yeah in in a way that I can feel quite composed about it. I was um, out shopping yesterday and I probably picked the wrong day for me because it was uh, in a massive Tesco's extra and there were about 10 million kids with their parents getting all the stuff to go back to school and it was absolute carnage. Now, so for me personally, eight, um, August has been the quietest month ever for people reaching out to me and it's quite obvious because they are head down uh, in warrior mode, getting through the summer holidays, right? Because as you said earlier, six, seven weeks of the kids being off is hellish, right? Let's be frank about it, right? It is, yeah. Um, and so to say to, oh, you know, why don't you stop drinking? Is like, I'm going to get punched in the face, right? Because it's like a coping mechanism, isn't it? And then I thought, you know what? Um, then there's going to be the aftermath of the school holidays of a month or, or so of oh, that it, inhalation of you know like oh god I've done it I've got over now I can relax and have my glass of wine and you know and then there's going to come a point of do you know what I've got to look at my drinking because this is getting out of hand again and, and it goes in cycles and and what I see now is coming up to five years is that I start to recognize cycles that people go through 
with the routine of drinking. Interesting. And it's almost like I want to reach out and say, look, <laughs> I know a little bit more about this. So why don't you like explore this route? Not you need to do it. Explore the route of actually living without alcohol is actually easier. It, it's the whole thing that we've got in our brains of, well, what I said to you earlier about like eating every day, it's like something people do. Just that they don't actually think about it too much. It's like, I need my wine. I need my wine. I need my coping mechanism. And that is wine or beer or vodka, you know. So it's almost like um, I I can see it, but there's not a lot I can do about it because I get punched in the face, you know. So all all I have to try and do is just quite like trickle things in to remind people actually that there is another way. And that's what this podcast does, right? Because, you know, I think you've been brilliant um, today. Uh, and I know you were nervous, but a lot of people are um, because it's a big thing saying your life story and whatnot. But, you know, people listen to these podcasts and they relate so much to people's stories. And, you know, you're a woman in your 30s, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you've now got a posh accent. I'm coming you back was a rough scouser, <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, to say... What? How did you pronounce Gabo Mate? Is that Gabo Mate? That's it. Mate, yeah. I mean, it's like Gabby Mate. Gabo Mate. Yeah, I'm reading my old Gabo Mate book. And uh, but you know, like it's encouraging for people to hear these kind of stories because they relate to them and they see where you are now after four years and you're managing with three kids under 12 years old and you look really healthy and happy and life's so much better. And that's all we can do, right? Is when to not preach, not judge and just just tell it how it is as well. Always, And I know you're like that as well. I love that about you because you're not one of these Insta influencers that are like, hey, let's go out and run 10K and get get in a cold, bloody bath and all that. (laughs) that. Don't you start me on wild swimming. Oh, my God. Well, I went wild swimming, right, and and I couldn't even see my hand within an inch under the water, right? And I was like, what is floating around in this river? It was actually, I did enjoy it, though, because I was with some amazing people for Be Sober. I went up north, up north, and um, it was a fantastic weekend. But each to their own. But what I love about you is you're really real. About. But Dave, can I can I just say I don't want to offend the wild swimming community inadvertently yet again? Because can I just say ultimate respect to the wild swimmers? I just love the transition from sobriety to wild swimming. I haven't made it myself yet. That's not to say that it won't happen. I'm just a big baby crybaby when it comes to ice cold water. But yeah, yeah. Well, I am. I can't stand all this cold bath stuff, I, and that's my own downfall. Not people who do it. I admire people who. Can I do. I, I do. mean, it's uh, another one. It's these people who become sober and start climbing mountains. I mean, what a load of idiots! Dude. I, mean, hey. I mean, what kind of man? Right, tell me, tell me. So you go into Nepal? Yeah, mate. yeah. Well, I did the uh, Mount Tup- yeah Mount Tupcal. And that was literally physically and mentally one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I related it to my sobriety because when I was going up this slope that you could almost fall back and die, it was that steep. Yeah. I did, And the snow was so thick and it was two in the morning. And I thought, just look at the bloke's heels and just keep walking one day at a time, one step at a time. I did that. And when I got back, I went, 
I am never, ever, ever putting these boots on ever again. I'm never doing it. I want to be in the Caribbean, laying on a beach with white sands, right? And then literally a month later, I'm booking the Annapurna circuit in, in Nepal, right? Dude. Yeah, so because, tell me about it. Who, who are you going with? Who's in the who's Well, in the I'm going with um, Johnny Lawrence, the self-development yeah. coach. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and Carrie and Johnny's brother and Trident Adventure. And there's wow. about tw- 12 of us and, and we're going out to Kathmandu and then we're getting on this really dodgy little plane. And that's one of the scariest planes in the, in the universe. And um, I'm out there for 16 days. Wow, mate, that's going to be absolutely mind bending. Could you imagine yourself doing that like five, six years ago? Well, all I could imagine is walking down to Morrison's to get some more vodka. Yeah, yeah, I, same. I totally relate. But it is just, you know, it's just worth benchmarking, isn't it, where sobriety takes you? Because, my God, it's it, it's not just stopping drinking. It's just so much more, isn't it? Your life just opens up in ways that you never thought it could. Absolutely, 100%. And this is why I like to encourage people that there is a life outside. You take the blinkers off. And you look around and you see the view and you think, do you know what? This is fantastic. And and try and get over that thing of the narrative that is boring without, because it isn't. But you have to put the effort in to change your yeah. life. You have mm-hmm. to fill the void with things. And whether that's exercise, meditation, reading, jigsaw puzzles, joining different groups, cycling groups, running groups, whatever it yeah. is connect you have connect. to connect yeah and yeah. change your life uh, remove the association of after work I drink to after work I go to the gym I put my bag in the boot and uh, I go and even if you have a sauna and a jacuzzi and a, a nice healthy drink at the end of it like a you know one of these smoothie things and that and then go home and you've got more energy for the kids if you've got them you know you have to put the effort in yeah. And the sleep, let's not forget the sleep. Oh my God. I've never had a proper night's sleep since I was like 13 years old. Like the first time, and it takes a while before it comes, yeah. but the first time you have that night's sleep and it is like that proper, fully sober, alcohol's out of your system, few weeks in, it is life-changing, life-changing. It is absolutely life-changing. Georgie, I'm going to end it here. I could talk to you all day. Um, I think you're brilliant and I've loved having you on today. I think you've been really great on this episode. So thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And one day I'll get to actually meet you and you say, well, I met you 15 minutes before, but you've forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see you in Nepal. Bye. Bye. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great week.